On this last Sunday of 1987, we are going to read the last three verses of the Old Testament together. So I'd invite you to turn to Malachi chapter 4, verses 4 through 6, and follow along with me as I read. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and ordinances that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the land with a curse. Well, we come to the end of the year and to the end of Malachi and to the end of the Old Testament, as Tom just said. And we find in these three verses at the end of the Old Testament something I would expect to find and something I wouldn't expect to find. I do expect to find a bridge, a glance back at the past and then a glance forward. Let's look at that first, and then I'll tell you what I I wouldn't expect to find. The glance backward is in verse 4. Remember the law. Of my servant Moses, the statutes, the ordinances that I commanded him at Horeb. Remember. So there's the word that sends us backward, right? When anybody says remember, you look back. But the next verse says, behold, I send, means I will send, you, Elijah, the prophet, before the great and terrible day the Lord comes. And so the glance is forward now. There's coming a day of victory, a day of the Lord, and a preceding preparer. Of the day of the Lord Elijah. So I expect that. That's the way I would write. At the end of a book. That ends the Old Testament. You look back and you remember the great deeds of God. At at Sinai or Horeb. Same place. And then you look forward to this great day coming. But I would not have expected him to end the whole Old Testament with a statement about the relationship between fathers and children. Elijah will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the land with a curse. And that's the end of the book. Would you have written it that way? Would you have chosen of all the things, of all the illustrations of the effects of the preaching of grace, the healing of a broken relationship between a father and a son, a daughter and a father. Well, I want to look at these three verses with you. Let's look first at the glance back in verse 4 to what God did at Horeb. Then we'll look forward to what God's going to do at the day of the Lord and in the time leading up to it through Elijah. And then we're going to look at this wonderfully pointed and practical final verse of the Old Testament about the healing of relations between fathers and children. First of all, then, verse 4, remember the law. What does that mean to you? When you hear the phrase, the command, remember the law. Maybe you don't hear it in that tone of voice. Maybe you hear it, remember the law, remember the law. I wonder how you hear that. Let me try to help you hear it in a particular way that perhaps you wouldn't have have thought of. 
with some analogies of similar commands. Luke 17, Jesus is talking to his disciples, warning them about the last days and how pressured and stressful and dangerous those days are going to be to their faith and urging them to be vigilant and not accumulate worldly securities to try to save their lives lest they lose them in the very effort. And then he cries out, remember Lot's wife. What does that mean? Remember Lot's wife. Why does he say that? He says it because that memory can save you. Memory can be a means of grace and salvation. There are a lot of people who have been taken by the hand and brought out of the city of destruction only partway to salvation to resist the drawing turn with an ungrateful desire back for sin city and die in that very moment forever hard as salt in a pillar form. And Jesus doesn't want that to happen. And he says, remember Lot's wife. Remember Lot's wife. Let it make you vigilant when you put your hand to the plow not to start turning back and longing for those old sins that you left behind. You could be forsaken in a moment and hard as stone. Here's another illustration of how remember can have power, merciful power. What grade did you study it in, I wonder? Tenth grade, maybe? The Texas Revolution. Davy Crockett. Jim Bowie. 1835. 150 Texas militiamen take the town of San Antonio. There is a chapel built into a fort in that town named... The Alamo. February 26, 1836, Santa Ana with 3,000 Mexican troops surround that town and lay it under siege. 32 reinforcements is all who can get through. So now there are 182 men in the fort. From February 26, To March 6th, they hold them off. And then they storm. It ends in bloody hand-to-hand combat, and every single Texan is slaughtered, including Davy Crockett and Jim Bowie, two of my old heroes, back when they used to be on TV. So that was the end of the Alamo, right? Wrong. Six weeks later, with tremendous indignation and rage. The Texas militia gathers its forces and lays waste the whole Mexican army at San Jacinto under what cry? Remember the Alamo! What does that mean? Why did that have so much power? The past has power in the present Through memory. 
People that say today, history is bunk. All that matters is the present. That's all we've got. No frittering around in old history books. They do not know what life is about. They don't know the way human beings work. The past has tremendous power when it flows through the channel of a challenging memory. Remember the Alamo. Remember Lot's wife. Remember the law. Now, what do you hear? What do you think God meant to be heard at the end of this book when he said, remember the law, remember Horeb? I think he meant something like this. Remember when I brought you on eagle's wings out of Egypt? How I split the sea for you? How I led you with a pillar of fire by night and a pillar of cloud by day? How the shoes didn't wear out on your feet nor the shirt on your back? How I brought water from the rock and manna from the sky? How I protected you from your enemies? How I encamped with you at Mount Sinai? How I came down in glory and revealed my name, Yahweh, I will be your God I will be slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. How I gave you good laws, holy statutes, wise commandments to lead you in the path of life, to bring you to glory forever and ever. Remember the law. You hear that? I think he meant you're in a war. The world surrounds you, fights you, wants to squeeze you in, rip the truth out of your mind, enslave you with its error. Fight! You must fight! Now, how are you going to fight? The memory. That's all you've got. Isn't that what Paul meant when he said, take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. What's take mean? It means remember. Get it into your head. Memorize it. Call it to mind. Apply it. Use it. Wield it. Through the access of memory. There is no other access to the Word of God than your memory. Remember the Word of God. So here we are at the end of 1987. You have five days left. Don't use them in regret for how you botched your Bible reading this year. Okay? Rather, repent, express your grief to the Lord, and plan. P-L-A-N with capital letters because it won't happen without planning. Plan how next year, beginning Friday, you are going to call to mind and remember the law, the word. Now, we're going to try to help you. You don't need to take our help if you have a better way. You're going to receive in the mail, I hope it gets to you this week, a letter with two little little brochures in it of two different ways to read through the Bible in 1987. If you like a topical way or a a chronological way or just a book in in the order of the Bible. A third idea is out here on the tables. Terry Nelson has prepared a closer walk booklet that if you follow his procedure through the year, then you can finish the Old Testament once and the New Testament twice, I believe it is, this year. So we're going to just try to hold out options for you. If you have a better way that God feeds you on the Word and you can call it to mind so you can fight with it during the day, fine. But let's plan in the next five days, what are we going to do in 1988? And then be ruthless in our discipline 
and feed ourselves as faithfully, spiritually as we do physically. What does a soldier or what does a uh, captain say to a soldier who comes to him and says uh, in the Texas militia, well, I got discouraged and I, I ran away during the battle because I forgot about the Alamo. It was hard to keep in my mind. I forgot. I'm sorry, Captain. What would the captain say? He might say, he ultimately will say, look, if the death of 182 of your comrades doesn't move your heart, then you're not fit to be in the militia and you're discharged without honor. He might say that. I think God will say to many professing Christians on the last day, if you were that little affected by the death of your king, then you're not fit to be in heaven. But I don't think he'll say that before he says a lot of merciful things. You know what the, you know what I think the captain, a good captain like Jesus would say first or like Moses? A good captain would say to that soldier, listen soldier, if you don't remember the Alamo, then when you go home tonight, you tell that story to your children. And when you get up in the morning, you tell it again. When you get up out of bed and when you lie down, you talk about the Alamo. When you walk in the way and when you come home, you think about the Alamo. You bind it as a sign on your hand or a string around your finger. You hang it as an amulet between your eyes. Nail it on the doorposts of your house if you must. Put it on the gate. Do whatever you must do to remember the Alamo. And if you know your Bible, you know that I'm just paraphrasing Deuteronomy 6, where Moses told us how to keep the Word of God in remembrance. It will never be an excuse to say, I forgot about the Word of God. I forgot about the cross. I forgot about the resurrection. I forgot about Horeb and the Exodus and the wilderness wandering. It just slipped my mind. Because the price was too great for that to be an adequate excuse. And the stakes are too high. A lot higher than the Texas liberation. We shift to verse 5 and glance forward. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and terrible day of the Lord. There are two things in this verse about the future that I want you to see. One is that the future will bring the victory of God, and the other is that the future will bring the mercy of God. Let's look at those one at a time. Where do I get the victory of God in this verse? I get it from the phrase, the day of the Lord. What do you hear when you hear the phrase, day of the Lord? Let me use two analogies to try to create a feel just like I did with Remember the law. Go with me to Gethsemane. You know what was happening in Gethsemane, don't you? Jesus sweating blood, agonizing over the obedience that he must perform. His disciples sleeping. 
And out come from the city torches, swords, clubs, the captain, the guard, the elders, the chief priests, a big mob. And if you've ever seen a mob, this is no laughing affair. And yet Jesus stands up and what he says is almost humorous. I don't think anybody laughed. But it sank in. Listen to this. He looked at them and said, Have you come out against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you didn't lay hands on me. And then, with absolute sovereignty and obedient submission to his father, he says these words. This is your hour and the power of darkness. As though a boxer, a champion boxer, should just lay his gloves down by his side and say, this is your round. And they beat him to a pulp. And he fell. K.O. Right? Amos, Joel, Isaiah, Zephaniah, Malachi, Paul, John say, Now God will have his day. You have your hour. What does that mean? You get the upper hand for one hour. I'll keep my hands by my side for one hour. Do as you please. But then God will have his day. Not only does Jesus come up off the mat, but the whole arena where the people were cheering when he fell is surrounded by 10 million heavily armed angels. He will have his day. He will settle accounts with all those who cheered when he fell and refused to repent. So the prophecy of the day of the Lord is a prophecy of God's victory. And what a folly it would be this morning to stay on the side of Satan, on the side of unbelief, when you know God's going to get the victory in the end. All the more so when you see the mercy in this verse. Let me point out the second thing, namely the mercy as well as the final vindication that's in this verse. I see it in these words, Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes. I will send Elijah first. Now, I wish we had an hour to study the coming of Elijah, because I've seen so many things that I hadn't seen before. Let me sketch for you in outline what I think this prophecy implies about the future then and the future now. Just as the Old Testament expectation of the coming of Messiah was fulfilled in two stages, the first coming of Jesus, meek, lowly, suffering, saving, so, and uh, comes the second time, a strong, mighty, powerful, vindicating, so John the Baptist or uh, Elijah's coming, I think is going to be in two stages. John the Baptist was a preliminary fulfillment, I think. 
And there is going to be another figure, another John or another Elijah. Now, let me just suggest why I think the pointers in the New Testament are that John was not the decisive fulfillment of this prophecy, though he was a crucial one. Luke one seventeen says he comes in the spirit and power of Elijah. Not just that he's Elijah. He comes in the spirit and power of Elijah. Matthew 11.14, Jesus says, if you are able to receive it, he is Elijah. As though this is a strange and surprising interpretation. Third, the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 21, when asked, are you Elijah? John the Baptist says, no. And Matthew 17.11, Jesus says in the future tense, Elijah comes and he will restore all things. Now, all those pointers suggest to me John the Baptist is a forerunner of Elijah as well as the Messiah. He is Elijah, but there is more Elijah yet to come. And then you go over to read Revelation chapter 11, verses 3 to 12, and you, you see this strange picture of two witnesses. Remember these two witnesses who witness? One of them is described as having power to bring plagues upon the earth, as though he were Moses. The other is described as one who has the power to shut up heaven for three years so that it cannot rain. And who's that? That's Elijah. Moses and Elijah were on the Mount of Transfiguration. Moses and Elijah, in some form or other, seem to be expected for the last day, giving a last, final, decisive call to repentance to the people of Israel. We don't need to get picky about the details, just to be awake and alert that there may yet be on the horizon some decisive forerunner of the second coming, just as much as there was a forerunner of the first coming. Now, what's the point of all this? The point is very simple. God precedes Wrath with mercy. The first Elijah was a merciful preparation for the day of the Lord. So will the second forerunner be. And so are all the messengers in between, including me here this morning. It's no accident that you're here this morning or that I'm preaching on this text. I really believe that. I have been appointed by God in his providence over the last months of preparation to be right where I am in the Old Testament. And you are here by divine appointment this morning. It is no accident. You are here to hear me say, prepare for the day of the Lord. I am a kind of Elijah this morning. I'm not the biblical Elijah. I wouldn't claim it at all. But God has appointed me in a wilderness called America to cry and say, prepare for the day of the Lord. And I say to you this morning with all my heart, prepare for the day of the Lord. Because even though that day may be a century away or a decade away or five years away, your day of the Lord might be this afternoon. Because if you die, that's it. There is no other intervening opportunity. So a stroke, a heart attack, a car wreck could send you off to God. Now, if you go to meet God this afternoon... Without belief in Jesus Christ, the only safety from the fire of judgment. You know what God's going to say to you? My servant, Elijah, John, Piper, preached to you and warned you this noonday that you needed to repent. 
that there was a bridge built across the chasm of alienation from me and sin called the cross, that there was a piece of paper called an amnesty signed by the blood of my son. He held it out to you right now in church this morning and you didn't take it. That's it. I mean, it's a terrifying thought to find yourself before the Lord of hosts having rejected Elijah's message, repent for the day of the Lord is at hand. So I urge you, before this service is over, in your heart, kneel before the King of Kings. Lay down your weapons and accept the terms of his amnesty, belief in Jesus Christ and the forsaking of sin. Finally, I want to try to make very attractive for those of you who are pondering that, the inside of the kingdom by describing what's held out in verse 6 here. And I want to encourage all of us imperfect people on the inside who have believed and joined the forces of righteousness and victory that there is perhaps some work yet for us to do in the area of our relationships. Verse 6 says that the result of Elijah's preaching, and I think it means the result of all faithful Bible, Holy Spirit-anointed preaching, will be that he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the land with a curse. Now, the first thing I want you to notice from verse 6 is that phrase at the end, because I want to confirm to you that I'm not uh, reaching for a straw when I say that there was mercy in verse 5. You see the, the, the point of that last phrase, lest I come and smite the land with a curse? What does lest mean? It means so that not, right? So you can paraphrase this. So that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. In other words, the ministry of Elijah is to help you avoid being smitten by God. That's mercy. God sends his forerunners, Elijah's, Piper's, and many, many thousands of others, whose purpose is to help people avoid being smitten in the last day of the Lord. When the fire of judgment comes. And that's mercy that God would do that. We don't deserve to have any forerunners help us get ready. We could be consumed any day and God would be just. His aim is to help us keep from being cursed. But to help us keep from being cursed, we must be changed. And specifically, our hearts must be changed. And even more specifically, our hearts towards our parents must be changed. Our hearts towards our children must be changed. And I want to close this morning by pleading with you to turn your heart towards your father and mother and children and relative. That friend who has, who has what? What does it mean when a heart is not toward somebody? What's the opposite of having a heart toward your father? Well, the opposite is having your heart against, away, turned Away from them, fleeing or angry. Let me give you some illustrations to show you how practical I think this is in our day. The opposite of having a heart turned away. Fathers, your heart, or the opposite of having a heart turned toward. What are some examples of the opposite? Fathers, your heart could be turned away simply by ignoring your children. Being so caught up in your work that all they get is the dregs of your life. Can't stay awake on the couch. 
Or your heart may be turned away from your children by abuse of them. I think the most common form of abuse is unintentional. The abuse of a heart in a father that owing to his own sin, his irritability, the pressures at work, his weariness, a habit is formed so that every time he opens his mouth, it seems like he's smashing that kid down. Criticism, disapproval, disappointment. All he hears from his dad is, is it isn't good enough. Of course, today the word abuse carries some awesome connotations for us in terms of sexual abuse. Where is a father's heart when he sexually abuses his child? I'll tell you where it is. It's coiled around like a snake, feeding on his tail, in love with his filthy passions, and consuming himself in unrighteousness. Or you can have your father turned away from your children by an embittered spirit of disappointment. They have forgotten you. They let you down. They don't look the way you want them to. They don't act the way you want them to. They don't believe the way you want them to. They've left home. They may not be Christians. And you are broken inside and embittered. That all that you poured into these kids seems to be for naught. And so your heart is against them in bitterness. What about the other way around? What about children towards parents? How are children's hearts away from their parents rather than toward their Fathers. Well, the first and most obvious example is disobedient and rebellious children. Children who, when they're told something, resist. They don't do it. They disobey. They say no. Or they say yes and then still don't do it. And their heart is not toward their parent. It's away from their parent. Five years old, 15 years old, doesn't make any difference. Where where is the heart of a rebellious teenager? I'll tell you where the heart of a rebellious teenager is. It's sitting in front of the mirror of the soul, trying to convince itself that the witch face of cockiness is the fairest in the land. And finally, children have their hearts turned against and away from their parents because they are the victims of abuse. And I'm going to come back to that in a moment. But let me simply now go back and turn these last statements into admonitions. Fathers, turn your hearts towards your children. This is the word of Elijah, the word of John, the word of God. Turn your hearts toward your children. Don't neglect them. Give them time. I just went back and reread some of my journals because this is my wife's 40th birthday and I want to read her some old times together this afternoon. And I opened up a college. I started keeping a journal in 1966. I was a 
junior in college. And I opened up and read, I forget what number it was, but I was a junior in college, and it said, to love is to spend time with. Now, I didn't learn that lesson very well, but that's true. To love is to spend time with. Fathers, turn your hearts to your children. Don't be unkind to them. Don't be without feeling. Put yourself in their shoes. Listen. Listen to what you're saying so you hear what this might sound like to this child. And then fathers, don't even let the thought of sexually using those children have two seconds standing in your brain. One of the great tragedies of our day is not just that we're hearing more about sexual abuse, but that we have to think about it. I I said to the first two services, and I think it's true, though I, I don't have the year down exactly right, that I don't think the thought that I or anybody would ever dream of sexually abusing a child entered my mind until I was 30 years old. Either I was naive or the the world was keeping it so under the hat. And I praise God for that naivete. I, I wish I didn't have to have it in my brain that such a thing is possible. It is so violent. It is so gross. It is so horrid that the, that, that would, when it comes into my mind, I wish I said, goodness, I wish I didn't have to think about that. And one of our Wise men, as he walked out of the service in the second hour, handed me this little card here, which I want to bring into the service at this point. And I know we're over time, but I hope this is important enough that you don't resent it. Um, He said, you're right, John, there's a lot of sexual abuse out there, but I'm I'm afraid of a whiplash. I don't want our fathers to be so self-conscious that they can't hug their children anymore that they can't play with their children, that they can't show physical affection to their children. And so I want to bring that in and say, look, I love my boys. I hug them all the time. We roll all over the floor together, and there is nothing more repulsive and foreign to my mind than the thought of any kind of homosexual use of those boys. And I want to say I'm going to give you the benefit of the doubt as well. Love those children with all your arms And all your kisses. But don't let the thought of sexual abuse stay in your mind more than a half a second when you read it in the paper. And children, an admonition to children now. Listen. Don't let your hearts turn away from your parents. Let your hearts go toward your parents with obedience and submission. Do what they say and show that your heart is toward them. Children, don't neglect your parents, your older parents. I mean, I have a grandmother. She has no children. My mother is dead. Her other son is dead. She has four grandchildren. Minneapolis, Charlotte, North Carolina, Ohio, and Philadelphia. She's over 90 She's in a nursing home in Philadelphia. She doesn't know Susie, my cousin, when she goes anymore, let alone my cards, let alone a Christmas gift. 
And it is one of the hardest things in my life to know what I'm supposed to do. How do you care? How do you show care? And the the implication of this text for children in relation to aging parents is at least this. Agonize over that. Just agonize over that, at least. Don't say, oh, she's being taken care of. We can go on with our upward mobility. She's not being taken care of, not without you. And I don't want to prescribe one thing, one way of relating or handling the difficulties of aging. But believe me, this text implies that your heart should swing in to those people with all your might and love them and care for them and visit them and cherish them and let them know they are God's. And then a final word to the victims of abuse. Here we're talking about a heart now. The text doesn't say that a son or a daughter can change the heart of an abusive father or mother. The implication is our own heart is our responsibility, not theirs. You can't do anything about that ultimately except give them over to God. And it may be that the road to restoration with that person, if it comes at all, would be a lifetime road. And it may be that on that road, the proper course will be with the help of a God-centered, Bible-oriented, gifted, wise, professional Christian counselor. And I commend that to you. But what I want to say, and it's what I just draw out of this simple verse, is that the decisive act of heart turning must be yours. And I mean a turning toward that abusive father. And what I have in mind when I say a turning toward that abusive father is this, that the feeling of being a victim would cease to justify animosity. That the feeling of victimization would cease to have this power to justify animosity. So that you could just feel yourself drenched so with God that it, as it were, flows out the ends of your fingers. Have you ever felt anything like that going out of your body? Now, how can that happen? Let me suggest how that might happen in your life this morning. Jesus Christ was the ultimately abused person. There never has been nor ever will be a person abused more than Jesus Christ. The abusers were you and me in our sin. Nobody else. There's no passing the buck here. My sin abused Jesus. Thorns pushed in. Slaps on the face. Mockery to the Son of God. A sword thrust up in his side. Rods crashing on his shoulders. Whips lashing his back. Nails through his wrists and feet. The thunk of the cross. And three hours of agony. You did it. 